0: Welcome back to another episode. I'm Maya Acosta with Plant Based DFW. Today, I'm sharing a recent lecture that Dr. Nancy Erickson gave for the Food as Medicine Summit. This lecture is titled Life After Menopause. She will touch on the impact of nutrition and lifestyle factors on hormonal health, osteoporosis and breast cancer risk. She will offer tips for optimizing your health during menopause. You may recall that I interviewed Dr. Erickson a while back and you can listen to that conversation on episode 20. She's very passionate about helping women take control of their health I will link the conversation in the show notes. Also, Dr. Erickson will be speaking for the upcoming American College of Lifestyle Medicine's conference in October. Dr. Nancy Erickson is currently an associate professor in maternal fetal medicine at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. I hope you enjoy this episode. Remember to subscribe to our channel to hear more great episodes like this one. Links to our YouTube channel newsletter podcast and links for our guests are also located in the show notes.
1: Well, welcome to the food is medicine summit. Uh, My name is Dr. Nancy Erickson. I'm really pleased to be asked to speak on a topic that I'm very passionate about. Uh, I don't just have passion professionally. It's personal too. And that's because I didn't even begin a plant-based diet until I was in my early 50s, just after menopause. And I want to share with you some of the benefits that I've received. I have no disclosures. And let's begin by reviewing the objectives, which are to recognize the impact of nutrition and lifestyle factors on hormonal health, osteoporosis, and breast cancer risk. I also am going to discuss lifestyle strategies to optimize your health during menopause and as well as uh, the impact of a whole food plant-based diet and how it can enhance your hormonal health, prevent osteoporosis and breast cancer. But before we go down that road, I just wanna put things in perspective and that is, is heart disease is still the number one killer of women, followed by a close second by cancer. So that means nearly 40% of all deaths in women are one of these two. Menopause represents an opportune time then to think about lifestyle changes, not only to help you during menopause, but also in the bigger picture to reduce the risk or reverse multiple chronic diseases. So I wanna begin by talking about the Women's Health Initiative Study, which was published nearly 20 years ago. It was a large study looking at 16,000 women over a period of years. And the reason they looked at this study, they basically wanted to see the impact of hormonal replacement therapy on heart and bone health. Their thought was, well, if we give estrogens to women going through menopause, we could possibly reduce the risk for cardiac disease. Unfortunately, they didn't get the results they expected or wanted. And the study was halted only after five years when it was planned for eight because there was nearly a 30% increase in heart disease and a 26% increased risk for breast cancers. So that means today it's very difficult for a woman to be placed on estrogen during menopause. So let's start by talking and looking how nutrition can impact the symptoms of menopause, which are vasomotor symptoms, including hot flushes and night sweats, There are central symptoms, including insomnia, mood changes, brain fog, and urogenital symptoms such as vaginal dryness and painful intercourse. Vasomotor symptoms are common in women, with hot flushes occurring in nearly 80% of women in the West, in the U.S. and Europe, as compared to relatively few of Asian women. In fact, in the Japanese language, there isn't even a word for hot flushes because they rarely get them. And the median duration of symptoms is about 10 years. Vasomotor symptoms happen to be the most common reason for sleep irregularities, which is why women are so motivated to not have them. So what can we do to help reduce these menopausal symptoms? Well, I want to begin by talking about the role of soy. A large prospective study in Japanese women looked at daily soy intakes uh, ranging anywhere from 44 to 116 grams per day. And hot flushes, it turns out, were significantly inversely associated with the consumption of soy products. That means the more soy they ate, the less likely they were to have hot flushes. And they even adjusted for other nutrients, including fat, total protein and fiber intake. And still, soy intake reduced the risk for hot flushes. Another study, a meta-analysis looking at 10 different studies, again showed that phytoestrogens significantly reduced hot flush frequency compared to placebo. Why is that? That's because estrogen on the left is a similar molecule to soy isoflavones on the right. Soy isoflavones, including genistein, are structurally similar to estrogen, and they actually act as anti-estrogens when estrogen levels are high, such as before menopause, and they act as an estrogen when they're low, such as during menopause. And clinically, they act like a selective estrogen receptor modulator, which is a synthetic chemical that blocks estrogen receptors. You may have heard of the drug tamoxifen, which is often given to breast cancer survivors to lower their estrogen levels. So that's exactly how these work. And it also turns out that estrogen and uh, plant phytoestrogens are different as far as where they work in the body. Estrogen binds predominantly to alpha receptors, which are found in the endometrium, the breast, ovarian stromal cells, and the hypothalamus. Whereas plant phytoestrogens bind predominantly to the beta receptors and the ovarian granulosa cells, they also bind to the kidney, the brain, the bone, heart, lungs, intestinal mucosa, and endothelial cells. Why is that important? Because soy isoflavones have a beneficial effect um, on the heart, including improving endothelial function, reducing cholesterol, and they have an anti-inflammatory and antioxidant activity. So taking soy during your menopausal years not only benefits those symptoms, it also uh, benefits your circulatory system and your heart health. I know this table is a little bit busy, but it gives you an idea overall of the different impact of uh, genistein, which is one of the soy isoflavones. So not only does it can reduce your vasomotor symptoms, it can improve your cardiovascular system. It can reduce your fasting glucose concentration, which is helpful uh, in reducing your risk for diabetes. And it also reduces the risk for breast, liver, lung, uh, stomach, and ovarian cancer. So I've talked about the benefits of soy versus placebo or not doing anything, but how does it stack up to hormonal replacement therapy? Because remember, that's really the gold standard uh, treatment prior to the Women's Health Initiative study. Well, this double-blind randomized controlled trial uh, matched soy intake versus hormone replacement therapy versus placebo over 16 weeks, so it was a very well-designed study. Um, both soy and the heart hormone replacement groups had significantly reduced hot flushes, muscle aches, and vaginal dryness, and there was no difference in the endometrial thickness, which is the lining of the uterus. What does that mean it basically means soy worked just as well as hormonal replacement therapy just without any of the bad side effects well how much soy do people need to eat you can see in the second column that the asian women tend to eat quite a bit of soy anywhere from 50 to 100 plus grams a day versus women in the united states and europe who eat very little And it turns out that two-thirds a cup of soybeans per day is roughly 100 grams of soy or 50 grams of isoflavone. And in order to consume 90 milligrams of isoflavone per day, which was used in the study I just mentioned, you would need to consume approximately uh, 200 grams of soy a day or nearly one and one-thirds cup per day. Well, how do different dietary patterns match up with menopausal symptoms? It's interesting to me that this study was only just published two years ago, um, but it was very meaningful because they compared vegans with omnivores to see who had more symptoms. And it turns out the vegans had significantly less hot flushes and night sweats and physical symptoms, particularly in the women that were perimenopausal. And that's because women who are perimenopausal have more hot flushes than you do, say, 10 to 15 years out. And in the adjusted analysis, it turns out that the total vegetable, berries, leafy greens, accounted for the significant reason why those women had less symptoms than the omnivores. And there was also an association between high meat intake and menopausal symptoms. So the moral of the story is really that we have a choice in all of this. If you want to welcome menopause, I really encourage you to start making changes now, no matter where you are. Or if you've gone through menopause, it's never too late. Now, moving on to osteoporosis, this this slide shows you a picture of what normal bone looks like on the left with osteoporotic bone on the right. So you can see the slide on the right's a little scary. You can see why having osteoporosis would increase your risk for fractures. Osteoporosis is actually very common in women with about 30% having a lifetime risk being affected. And then there's 11% lifetime risk for hip fracture. And interestingly enough, fractures happen more in women than in men, and they have up to 80% of the hip fractures because they tend to outlive men. The really sad part of this is half of women greater than 80 years of age who have a hip fracture actually lose their ability to walk independently within a year. And a large number of uh, patients, up to 50%, can actually die secondary to complications from a hip fracture. So preventing this is really important. Here's another type of fracture. This is called a vertebral compression fracture. These are actually the most common ones that um, you you will have followed by hip and wrist. And a vertebral fracture is very painful and it increases the risk for other vertebral fractures. So this is something also that you wanna avoid getting. What are some of our risk factors? Well, low estrogen is the major one. But there's also ethnic variation, too, with Caucasians having the highest instance of osteoporosis and African-Americans having the lowest. There's lifestyle factors, which we'll talk about in a minute. Medications such as steroids or chemotherapy, genetic diseases, autoimmune diseases, or endocrine disorders all play a role in increasing your risk for osteoporosis. This graph shows you the 10-year fracture risk based on your T-score. The T-score is derived from a DEXA scan with minus 2.5 being a diagnostic of osteoporosis. And you can see both with the higher the score, as well as the older you get, the greater that 10-year fracture risk goes. So for example, if you had a score of minus 2.5 at age 50, your risk for a 10-year risk for getting a fracture is around 10%. But if you have that same number at age 80, it's closer to 30% risk. There's also wide variations in hip fracture rates, depending on where you live geographically. Some of the highest rates are Norway and Sweden. The United States is pretty high as well. But you can see Hong Kong on the list has about a third of the fractures or a quarter of the fractures that Norway does. And in California, you can see that the risk for fracture is much lower in Asians, Blacks, and Hispanics than it is for whites, almost half as much. Well, why is that? Well, it's thought that um, not only does the Western nations have a higher calorie intake, but they have a higher dairy intake or more animal protein, higher fat intake, and they also have higher calcium. Asians, on the other hand, have a much higher uh, phytoestrogen consumption. And uh, although they have a lower protein amount, they get most of their protein from plant sources. I mentioned earlier that uh, a DEXA scan is how we diagnose osteoporosis. So this just kind of explains um, the different scoring system or T-score that you get at the end of the DEXA scan. Most of the time, DEXA scans are recommended once you get in your 60s. But if you have any of the predisposing risk factors for osteoporosis, you may want to talk to your doctor about getting one um, a lot earlier in life. So for example, if you're diabetic, or you have an autoimmune disease, you're at increased risk for this. So you wanna get a DEXA scan earlier. The score of minus 2.5, of course, is diagnostic of osteoporosis with a normal value equal to or greater than minus one. And anything in between is called osteopenia, which means low bone mass. So for example, you might've been on a medication, like say you're on steroids, or you've had chemotherapy. You might, even at a younger age, you might have some changes already that indicate you're at risk for osteoporosis. Well, I wanna move on to some of the things that are bad to the bone. These are modifiable risk factors such as calcium intake, vitamin D, high salt intake, an inflammatory diet, high caffeine intake, for example, more than two cups of coffee a day does increase your risk for osteoporosis, as does a sedentary lifestyle, smoking, and alcohol use. Well, calcium supplementation has actually been fairly controversial because it's not significantly associated with hip fracture risk in men or women. And calcium may actually reduce the risk of fracture by only 10%, so much so that the U.S. Public Service Task Force doesn't even recommend calcium for prevention of osteoporosis. But keep in mind the best source of calcium is is actually food, not supplements. You can get an average of 600 to 700 milligrams per day of calcium on a high-fiber diet. Calcium supplementation is indicated, though, if you've already diagnosed with osteoporosis or if you have some sort of malabsorption disease like celiac disease, gastric bypass, or irritable bowel syndrome. There's also no consensus for daily calcium intake, with the U.S. recommending 1,200 milligrams per day age over 50, with the U.K. only recommending 500 to 1,000 milligrams a day. And remember that minerals are always better absorbed through food than through supplements because we don't we absorb those elements better. That's why we have to take much more in a supplement to make up for what we're not getting in the food. Well, what foods are best for sources of calcium? Well, here's a picture of several of them. Your cruciferous vegetables such as broccoli or cauliflower, your peas and beans, nuts, especially uh, almonds or Brazil nuts, sunflower seeds, oranges, molasses, these are all great sources of calcium. Moving on to vitamin D, well, the optimal source is the sun, but realistically that's not always possible for a lot of us because in modern times we don't always work outside as much or we may not live in an area of the country or regionally where we get a lot of sun. Currently, the United States recommends anywhere from 600 to 1,000 international units a day of vitamin D, but that may not be enough for everyone, so it's best to check a vitamin D level and supplement as needed. Good plant-based sources of vitamin D include fortified plant-based milks and juices, tofu, soy yogurt, and some mushrooms. Okay, high salt intake also increases your f- for osteoporosis, and the major source of that in the United States is processed foods, such as processed meat, fast foods, canned foods, and baked goods. So it's best to avoid those. I want to also mention the ketogenic diet because that's kind of a fad diet right now. Um, Although I'm not aware of any studies that looked at um, risk for osteoporosis or fracture rate on a ketogenic diet, there is data on children. The main reason a ketogenic diet is used in children is with children with uh, intractable epilepsy or seizures. This particular study was done over a fairly long period of time, anywhere from six to 12 years. You can see that about a third of the patients had to drop out because they couldn't maintain the diet. Another um, third of them had slow growth and they all had elevated cholesterols. And a significant portion, about a quarter of the patients either had a kidney stone or fracture. In summary, the ketogenic diet is really not favorable to bones, the earlier in life you are, the, the more of the impact it has. Well, what about diets and risk for fractures? Well, studies have looked at dietary inflammatory index and noted the higher, the more inflammatory your diet, the lower your bone mineral density, or BMD, and the higher rate of hip fracture in Caucasian women. Also, eating less than five servings a day of fruits and vegetables also increases your risk for hip fracture in Sweden. And a big meta-analysis of 10 studies showed that increasing your vegetable intake lowered the risk of osteoporosis by nearly 30%. And in particular, a Mediterranean diet was associated with decreased risk of hip fracture. Well, what about a vegan diet in osteoporosis? This study was done in Buddhist nuns, and they were matched with omnivores. Interestingly enough, the vegans had about half as much calcium intake as the omnivores, but there was no correlation between calcium intake and bone mineral density in either group. And the rate of osteoporosis at the femoral neck was similar between vegans and omnivores, despite the omnivores taking twice as much calcium per day. And another study done by the same investigator looked at fractures over a two year period of time, which isn't really very long, What's interesting to me is the rate of bone loss in vegans was somewhat less than um, omnivores, although it technically wasn't statistically significant, and the fracture rate was also very similar. They did note that corticosteroid use and high intake of animal protein was negatively associated with bone loss. Let's look at soy again in bone mineral density. Here again, another study, randomized controlled trial Stacking up estrogens versus genistein, 54 milligrams a day versus placebo over one year. And basically, soy performed just as well as hormonal replacement therapy um, and increased the bone mineral density in the femoral neck and lumbar spine. And importantly, there was no adverse effect um, of soy on either the uterus or the breast. What about soy and risk of fracture? This was a very large study, over 62,000 men and women. And it showed that men and women who consume the most vegetables, fruit, and soy had a 34% reduction in risk of hip fracture. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that physical activity is very important for reducing your risk for osteoporosis and fracture. The more you exercise, the better your chances of not getting osteoporosis. And it's important also to mention that uh, this is, it needs to be weight bearing exercise. So things like just walking is really important. Um, you don't have to do anything physically overly physically demanding to, pr- to help or reduce your risk. So in summary, what are some of the things that we want to look at as far as reducing your risk? Well, protein levels, um, about 12%, that's what the studies show roughly, that you need to maintain. You want to have calcium-containing foods, particularly greens and beans. Soy-containing foods, maintain a normal vitamin D. In fact, Endocrinologists who tend to specialize in osteoporosis mentioned that to adequately absorb calcium, you want to maintain a level somewhere between 50 and 80, not just above the normal level. You also want to do rate-bearing exercise, quit smoking, and limit your alcohol intake. Moving on to breast cancer, I just want to show you that there is also a geographical difference in the incidence of breast cancer worldwide. I know this slide is busy, but if you kind of look at the bars, the blue bars on the right-hand side, the ones that stick over farthest to the right, guess what countries those are? That's the United States and the European Union, followed by a close third by other developed nations. Those have the highest risk for breast cancer. And the ones with the short blue bars, that's China, India, Africa. So there's definitely a difference in incidence. And that incidence does increase with age. You can see the 10-year probability for breast cancer keeps increasing as you age, with an overall lifetime risk of 12% or 1 in 8 women, which is quite a few. There's also a big spread in um, incidence based on ethnicity. Look at the dark pink line. That's non-Hispanic whites. They have the highest incidence, followed by non-Hispanic black, Hispanic, and Asian women who have the lowest risk for breast cancer. I'm sure you've all heard about the BRAC gene, which is actually an onco gene, which means it's designed to suppress cancer. But women who have the mutation, um, it, that increases the risk for breast cancer, although only less than 10% of all breast cancers are due to the BRAC gene, which means about 90% or so have nothing to do with genes. These cases also typically occur before the age of 50. What are some of the risk factors? Well, the top four are being overweight or obese, alcohol intake, low fiber diet, and lack of exercise. Those are the big four. But also I mentioned age increases that risk, night shift work, a low vitamin D, and I want to do another shout out to vitamin D because... I'm on a mission. (laughs) Everyone get your vitamin D up because interestingly enough, the same level that helps you retain bone or prevent bone loss is also the same range. 50 to 80 is also the one range that you want to have to lower your risk for breast cancer. Hormonal replacement therapy also can increase your risk, as I mentioned previously in the Women's um, Health Initiative study, as well as never breastfeeding, delayed childbearing, high fat dairy red meat consumption and low phytoestrogen consumption. What about the association between animal protein and breast cancer? Well, the International Agency for Research on Cancer has designated all processed meat as a class one carcinogen, which means it causes cancer. Those are things like bacon, sausage, ham, hot dogs, deli meats, beef jerky, and then red meat is classified as a class two carcinogen, which means it probably causes cancer. Most think it's due to the nitrates that are um, in those meats, like the processed meats. But beware of a label that says no nitrates added except for those naturally occurring celery powder. Well, there's nitrates that can happen in plants too. So just because it says no nitrates doesn't mean there's absolutely no nitrates. The World Cancer Research Fund has gone so far as to say we should avoid all processed meat, and the American Cancer Society says we should limit consumption of processed meat. So regardless of where you are in your plant-based journey, one of the first things to consider dropping out are your processed and red meats. What about studies that have looked at this over time? Well, the Nurses' Health Study showed that women, pre-menopausal women who ate more than one and a half servings per day of red meat, had almost 100% higher incidence of breast cancer. Also, the uh, Adventist Health Study 2, which compared meat eaters with vegetarians and vegans, showed that vegans were the only subgroup to show a statistically significant drop of 44% in both breast and gynecologic cancers relative to meat eaters. That's pretty impressive. We know that dairy includes uh, trans fat and your saturated fats and that the full fat dairy poses the greatest increased risk for breast cancer. That's products like whole milk, butter, and cheese. And a more recent study showed that women who consume the greatest amount of cheese actually had a 53% increased risk of breast cancer. And when this study came out, the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine actually petitioned um, and recommends that cheese be labeled as a carcinogen. So, again, kind of summarizing some of the things we can do for breast cancer prevention. The top four are a high fiber or whole food plant based diet, to limit alcohol and maintain a healthy weight, and to exercise. But if we achieve the top three recommendations, that can reduce your risk for breast cancer by a whopping 62%. And it turns out that the same diet we recommend to prevent breast cancer is the one that breast cancer survivors should follow because women who've had breast cancer can lower their risk for recurrence by up to 50% by following these same recommendations. I do wanna mention um, the difference between screening and prevention. It's important to remember that cancer cells are floating around in our body all the time. It's just most of us don't have them taking over our body. Studies show that 39% of women in their 40s already have breast cancer tumors that are too small to detect using mammography. And breast cancer screening, such as mammography, is, is really early detection. It's not prevention. It's not a prevention strategy. So the time to start eating healthier is now. What are some breast cancer superfoods? Well, high-fiber diet, of course, cruciferous vegetables, leafy greens, berries, and apples, as well as soy, tomatoes, mushrooms, garlic and onions, turmeric, and flaxseed. Again, I want to uh, drive this point home about fiber and breast cancer. Turns out only 3% of Americans actually consume the recommended amount of daily fiber. Fiber works by actually binding excess estrogen and toxin and releases antioxidants. And in prospective studies, these are several studies, they've shown that 60 grams per day of fiber can lead to a 60% reduction in the risk of breast cancer. And to give you a point of reference, a vegan, typical vegan diet, Uh, might have anywhere from 47 to 50 grams per day. But a whole food plant-based diet gives you anywhere from 60 to 70 grams per day of fiber. When we talked about soy, um, the best way to consume it is actually as a whole food. Uh, Why? Because you get the phytonutrients and antioxidants. And I mentioned that soy does work on the beta cells, has an anti-estrogen effect similar to tamoxifen. And it works by stopping the conversion of steroids to estrogen. Soy phytonutrients also might reverse DNA hypermethylation and restore expression of the oncosuppressor genes, BRCA1 and 2, which means if you happen to have the mutation, soy can actually help um, lessen the expression of that gene. And it turns out that soy during a lifetime can actually reduce your risk for breast cancer by 60%. And it even works on breast cancer survivors. And gives them longer survival. And that was true whether or not they were hormonal receptor positive or negative. So, the American Institute for Cancer Research in 2011 came out with this statement saying it's beneficial to include soy food as part of a healthy diet for women, including those who have had breast cancer. Flaxseed is actually beneficial too because it's a rich source of omega 3 fatty acids and it also has 100 times more lignin precursors than other foods. Lignins are actually phytoestrogens, and they dampen the effect of the body's own estrogen. Uh, the more you intake, the more you can decrease your risk for breast cancer in postmenopausal women, and it also reduces tumor growth in patients with breast cancer. So adding flaxseed to your diet is really important in addition to high-fiber diet. And lastly, let's talk about alcohol and breast cancer risk. You can see from this um, slide that there's a kind of a dose-dependent response to alcohol and your risk for breast cancer. One drink a day increases your risk by 10%, two drinks a day by 20%, three drinks a day by 30%. You get the picture. It works by increasing your estrogen levels, except for red wine, which luckily has an aromatase inhibitor and it's not quite as bad. It also impairs immune function and inactivates folic acid. Well, folic acid is really important because that's how your body repairs DNA that's been damaged. So if you block the ability of your own folate, even if you're ingesting it through food, you're going to block the ability to repair your own DNA. It also creates toxic metabolites such as acetaldehyde, and it has nearly twice as many calories as your carbohydrates. So that may make a difference as far as your ability to um, keep weight off or lose weight and it might actually contribute to weight gain. In 2010, the World Health Organization actually classified alcohol as a definitive human breast carcinogen. And in 2014, the World Health Organization stated that there's no amount of alcohol that's safe with regard to breast cancer. And I want to leave you with a couple of thoughts. Um, the first is a... Is a um, Quote by Hippocrates that before you heal someone, ask him if he's willing to give up the things that make him sick. Why? Because psychologically, it's much easier for us to add one healthy thing into our diet than it is to remove the things that are unhealthy. So while I'm recommending you add more plants, you also want to remove at the same time the things that are unhealthy, the things that are going to make you sick. So there's always going to kind of be a tug of war between the things that are healthy, like the whole food plants and the junk food and the processed food. But once you make that leap, you find that the stuff on the bottom of the slide no longer has an appeal. And remember that you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. Thank you very much for attending and uh, good luck on your plant-based journey.
0: been listening to the plant-based DFW podcast show. If you like our content, please like, share and leave a review. Our goal is to provide quality episodes to help support the community.